Now, usually when it comes to Easter time, we, we talk a lot about, you know, Jesus, which Easter is all about Jesus. And we talk about the death and, and the resurrection. And we talk about a lot of these events that happen in Jesus' life and miracles and things that are just kind of amazing to happen. Um, and they kind of the dark side of, of it too. But, but there's a group of people I think sometimes we just kind of gloss over. And I'm going to call these the bad boys of Easter. There are like six dudes in this story who are really integral to what's happening and to the death of Jesus. And yet we really don't talk about them a whole lot. And so over the course of the next six weeks, as Daniel said, into Easter, we're going to focus each week on one of these characters in the story. One of these people that are, that are important into the events that take place. And, um, and here's the crazy part. As we look at each one of these, and we can look at them from this villain perspective, but here's the deal. As I look at them, I see you and me in them too. And so we're going to talk about that aspect of it as we go into, again, the series called The Bad Boys of Easter. All right? So here's where we're going to start today. We're going to start in John chapter 11, starting with verse 45. Here's what we read. It says, Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. A little context here. Prior to this, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A lot of people saw this. They experienced it. People are starting to hear about what happened. And because of this miracle, more and more people are believing in Jesus and actually starting to follow Jesus. Look at verse 46. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. So Jesus does this incredible miracle. He brings this dead man to life. Again, people are starting to follow Jesus. They're, they're taking notice of who Jesus is. But also the religious leaders are doing that, right? And they're starting to get afraid. They're starting to get scared of what this means for them. Because look at what it says here. They even acknowledge, do you catch this? They acknowledge the miracles that Jesus is doing. But even though they acknowledge this, there's this fear that's there, this fear that's going to bring about this destruction for their nation and for the temple. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the why in a moment, but, but this right here tells us how much of a problem Jesus is for these religious leaders. In fact, as we read this, it says they, they call all of these religious leaders together. Uh, this would have been a meeting with the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were kind of like the attorneys back in, in that day. They, they knew the law and made sure everybody followed the laws. Uh, then you had the Sadducees. Uh, they were really aristocrats. They, they were wealthy religious leaders. Their big thing was they didn't believe in the resurrection, a bodily resurrection. That was kind of their big hang-up theologically. And then you had the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was very much like our Supreme Court today. They, they kind of oversaw things in, in that way. All these people come together and they have this agreement on one thing. Jesus is a problem. This would be like here, 12 miles from here, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, all getting together. And there's this one issue, this one problem that they all agree on. Like, we think Lazarus being raised from the grave would be a miracle or was a miracle. Hey, we know here that would be a huge miracle. Like, Jesus is probably coming back if all three of these groups get together and they all agree on the exact same issue, right? But that's what we find here. They all agree that Jesus is a problem. That they've got to do something about Jesus. 
And this is where we meet our bad boy of Easter, a guy named Joseph Caiaphas. Look at verse 49. Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Let me give you a little background, a little history here on the high priest and that role. Um, from really about the time of Moses, maybe a little before that, until about 63 B.C. or B.C.E., whichever one you guys like, you know, UBU when it comes to that, um, the Israelites, they got to choose who their high priest was going to be. Well, in 63 B.C.E., the Romans come in, they conquer Israel. And, and when they do this, they, they find out the setup for the high priest, that this high priest really is sort of this religious and even though there's a king, a political leader too, and there's not a whole lot of separation, and they don't like this setup at all. They feel like that's too much power for this one person, and they felt like it was dangerous for Roman rule. rule. So the Romans come in, and they pull the plug on allowing the Israelites to choose their high priest. They're like, we're going to choose the high priest now. We'll let you have a little, little influence in this, a little insight if you like, but we're going to be the ones who are going to actually choose who the high priest is. Well, the high priest, their role is very much like a president's role for a, a nation. Uh, they were the face for the people. Uh, they helped make decisions for the people. And again, as we've talked about here, they're doing this religiously and, and politically. But there's really two main rule, roles of the high priest. One is they oversee this group called the Sanhedrin. Again, I said this was kind of like our Supreme Court. There are 71 members of the Sanhedrin, and their job was to oversee this, this group and kind of keep them collectively together. But their other big rule, role was that once a year on Yom Kippur, uh, the priest, the high priest, would go into the temple and specifically into the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where it was said God was. And so this was the only person that could do this. The only person could go into this room at all throughout the year. And on this particular day, they could go into this room. Uh, they would spread or sprinkle the blood of, of sacrificed animals in there. Uh, they would burn incense. And so this was really one of their big days. It was kind of like, hey, uh, um, uh, you know, we're sacrificing all these animals. You know, forgive us, God, for this past year and the sins that we've committed. I mean, this is for the nation of Israel. And so this was really two of the main roles for this particular person in this role. And so in the midst of this, we meet a guy named Joseph Caiaphas. He was put into this role about 19 BCE, and he held that role for about 19 years. He was actually placed in that role by a guy named Quirinius, which if you know the birth of Jesus, there's a connection that is, is there. But we know a few things about Caiaphas himself, too. He is really part of a family dynasty. Uh, his father-in-law is Annas, and if you're familiar with the story of Jesus at this particular time where he's in the last few days of his life, you're, you're going to read about Annas in that. He had been the high priest for quite a few years. Uh, he has five sons, which are actually the brother-in-laws of Caiaphas, and these five sons are high priests at some point in time too. So there's this, this family dynasty that Caiaphas is a part of in the role of high priest. Caiaphas is also the most powerful and influential person in Jerusalem because not only is he helping to oversee these parts of the Jewish people, he's also very connected to, to Rome. Uh, he communicated with whoever was in that Roman rule position there, which in, in our case, where we are right here in the life of Jesus, is Pilate. If you know about the arrest of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a Roman presence there. Well, why does that take place? 
Well, it's because Caiaphas goes to Pilate and like, hey, I need a few of your soldiers. And Pilate's like, sure, no problem at all. So he gives them a few of these Roman soldiers to go and help arrest Jesus. And, and so again, he's influential there in that particular area with not only the Israelites, but also with the Romans. He's also a financial powerhouse. This guy is extremely wealthy. Uh, the people that were Jewish, no matter where they lived, had to pay a temple tax. And so they would send this money in yearly. No matter, again, wherever they were, they had to send this in to pay this temple tax. In today's economics, this meant millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars were actually coming there to the temple. In fact, there's so much money that's coming to the temple that leaders in these other Roman provinces, they were going to Rome and like, can you stop this practice? Like, it's taking money from us. They're sending so much money back to Jerusalem and back to the temple. Can you help us out? Now, Rome never did any of that. They didn't help them at all. And probably because Rome was skimming off of what was happening there in Jerusalem itself. But do you know who's taking a cut of that? The high priest. And so Caiaphas is, is getting a, a part of that. Not only is he getting a part of that, but these animals, the sacrificial animals that are being purchased there at the temple, uh, the money changers that are there, he's getting a cut of all of this. I mean, this guy is financially set. He is probably, a, in our day and time, a multimillionaire. If he was a pastor, he'd be on the website Preacher Sneakers, right? Because, I mean, that's just kind of who he was. He had all kinds of money. There was this financial stuff that was just happening for him. But he was also known as a skilled facilitator, negotiator. He was confident. He knew how to lead others. He could get things done. He was known to have a little bit of a temper and to get his way and demands met, whatever they may have been. And so he has this role for 19 years as this political and religious leader. He's someone the Romans put up with and the Jewish people followed. And so if you look at Caiaphas, you think he's got it all, right? He's got political power. He's got religious influence. He's got incredible wealth. And into this almost perfect world for Caiaphas walks a carpenter, a guy named Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and over the course of three years, you start to see more and more people are following Jesus. You see more and more crowds are around Jesus. And we're not talking about like a couple of people, are we? We're talking about hundreds of people are there to hear and to watch Jesus. We're talking, because we know some of the stories, thousands and thousands of people are there to see and to listen to and to learn from Jesus. But here's what big crowds meant to Caiaphas. It meant that there were problems. Because lots of people with a charismatic leader could lead to an insurrection. And if an insurrection happens there in Jerusalem, then that means Rome's going to get involved. And if Rome gets involved, then here's what Caiaphas may lose. He may lose his job. He may lose his influence. He may lose his, his title. He may lose his, his wealth. And so here's Caiaphas who's thinking through all of these different things. And he sees Jesus as a threat. A threat to the political system, a threat to his, his, the, the religious uh, influence that he has, a threat to his income and his job. And so when Caiaphas says it's better for Jesus to die than to lose everything, he's only partly, I think, thinking about the nation of Israel. Mostly what he's thinking about is himself. 
that, that I need to protect and bring peace to this nation, but I need to protect myself. And what's the best way to do that? The best way to do that is to get rid of this one man. One commentator put it this way, said Caiaphas's solution was rational and ruthless. Let's get on down to verse 53. It says, so from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. The word that we find here for plot is actually means resolved. And it tells us that the Sanhedrin, they have gotten together with these religious leaders and they've actually made an official decision that this guy, Jesus, is trouble and they've got to do whatever they can to get rid of him. Which leads us to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, Jesus is arrested. Uh, he had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken actually to the home of of Caiaphas. And we read this in Matthew 26, 57. It says, And the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Again, this is the same group we, we talked about earlier, right? The House, Senate, Supreme Court, all, all coming together. They, they've put this plot together. They've followed it. And, and now they're at this place where they're getting this plot taken care of. They're, they're getting it done, right? They've arrested Jesus. This is the first stage. And now they've put together this impromptu trial in Caiaphas's home, which actually was probably a palace. It, it wasn't really a home. But here's the deal. This trial they're doing, it's against the law. In fact, they're breaking all kinds of laws by the steps that they're taking here. Uh, one, they're holding court on the eve of a holy day against the law. They're holding court at night against the law. Uh, if you read the next few verses, they're, they're looking for witnesses to bribe. Hey, guess what? Against the law. They're holding this impromptu trial in someone's house, again, against the law. Everything they're doing right here is illegal, which shows how much hate and disdain they had towards Jesus and how much they will do anything to get rid of him. Well, here's how, kind of how things go. Look at verse 62. It says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we have these charges that are brought to Jesus. Caiaphas asked Jesus this question to tell him who he is. Look at verse 64. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, so Jesus doesn't say what Caiaphas wants him to say, but he does affirm what Caiaphas actually says. He's like, you know it, you said it, soon others are going to see this too. And here's Caiaphas's response, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Here's Jesus. There's this illegal trial that's happening in the palace of Caiaphas. Jesus speaks and Caiaphas yells out blasphemy. Now, here's the deal. Blasphemy is when you said something against God. Or blasphemy was when you made an arrogant statement against the law. If you read this, Jesus does neither of those. What he says isn't, isn't blasphemous at all. And yet they say, you have blasphemed God. You 
are guilty. And then I think to kind of put on a show, Caiaphas rips his robe. Now, by the way, if you were the high priest, it was illegal for you to rip your clothing. I mean, there's all kinds of illegalities that, that are going on here, there in this moment, because they're trying to get rid of Jesus. But the question is, why? Why is this carpenter from really the backwoods of this nation causing Caiaphas so much stress? Well, I think it comes down to one word. It comes down to the word fear. The Caiaphas has so much fear. One of the fears he has, he has this fear of losing everything. If you go back and you look at Caiaphas and the life he's leading, he has it all. He has influence with Rome. He has a title. I mean, he, he's got the highest title in Israel. And I, and I would almost say that the title of high priest was even higher, bigger than the, the title of king for Israel. But the people of Israel, they listen to his words. He's, he's got influence as a religious leader. He, he, he's, got, he's got wealth. He, he's a multimillionaire. But he doesn't want to lose any of this. He, he wants to make sure he holds on to this. And he has this, this fear that he might lose it all. So he, here he is, he's making decisions to go against everything that he knows, everything he's been taught, everything he believes. Why is he doing this? There's that fear of losing everything. But then I think there's a second fear there. He fears Jesus. And, and honestly, I, I think this is what he fears the most. Jesus is influencing people. People are listening to Jesus. Je people are, are doing what Jesus teaches them to do. People are following Jesus. And here's Caiaphas who's kind of losing this, this influence, this power over the people. And, and he sees Jesus and he, he's afraid that Jesus is going to take it all away. In, in his mind, I think he's like, hey, I've worked too hard. I have given up too much for some little rinky-dinky carpenter to come in and end all of this for me. And so the presence of Jesus, Jesus being alive, is a problem that Caiaphas wants to do all he can to get rid of. But then I look at Caiaphas, and I look at you, and I look at me, and I really think, are we really that much different? Because how many of us have a fear of losing everything? That maybe in our life we have a little bit of power, prestige. Maybe we've got some influence. Maybe we've got wealth. And yet we carry this, this fear that we may lose it all. And what will we do if, it, if it's not there anymore? And so we begin to do things in our life that we regret. Because of this fear of losing it all. Uh, have you ever sacrificed your, your family to maintain a certain standard of living? Have you ever been in a relationship where you've compromised your moral standards to sustain that relationship? At, at work, have you ever stepped beyond your ethical boundaries to keep or, or to get uh, that, that, that deal done? Or, or personally, have you ever lied to prop up your reputation because you don't want others to know the truth about you? But here's what we'll say. I've worked too hard. I've given up too much to lose it all. What we find is that there's this fear that's deep down in us that's driving us. But, but I would say it even goes deeper than that. It's not just this fear of, of losing everything. I think we have a fear of Jesus too.
That, that we have a fear of surrendering our lives fully to Jesus. That, that kind of we've talked about over the, the past few weeks in our marriage series, you know, how, how God says, hey, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. But you and I, we have these little gods in, in front of us. We, that power, prestige, the possessions, uh, the possess, position, all these things, we, we have these. And they're almost like these little gods that we hold on to, that, that, that we can't let go of. And, and because of Jesus, we, we have this fear of what he will ask us to do. But here's what we find out in our life, that no matter how hard we try to hold on to those little gods, they will always disappoint us. That they're always going to be there and they will always disappoint us. And yet the carpenter steps into our lives too and says, hey, why don't you fully follow me? Why, why don't you do what I teach? Why don't you live this life? But we're still grasping onto those little gods that we have. We're afraid we'll lose everything. We're afraid of what Jesus will ask of us. And so we have to learn how to move beyond this fear. But many times we don't. What we actually do is we try to preserve our, our way of life. We, we try to hold on to those things that we know we should let go of. Uh, think about it. Everything we try to preserve is probably not a part of our life today. That there are things in lives we've tried to hold on to and they're just not there anymore. You've, you've tried to preserve that, that relationship that you had with that person and you gave a lot to it and you made choices that you normally wouldn't and you thought it would keep him around. You thought it would keep her happy. But now you look and, and it's all gone. And what do you have? All you have left are your regrets. Or maybe you try to preserve that account and you knew the decisions you were making were against your ethics and even business, business ethics, but you don't want to lose their business. You don't want to lose your role, your reputation. And you thought, hey, they're, they're going to stick with me. They're, they're going to keep me around when I do this. And, and here you are, you're, you're trying to find a new job or you just hold on to these regrets because of these decisions that you've made. Because our desire to preserve those little gods in our lives they always lead to this thing called self-destruction. And yet we keep making these decisions in our life all the time. And then we see Caiaphas. Here's this high priest, this, this big dog. Theologically, he's probably as sound as anybody could be. He, he knows what we call the Old Testament. He knows it backwards and forwards. And in fact, in his role, he had to memorize he had to memorize all of that's in what we, again, we call the Old Testament. And so he knows what it says in there, right? He knows it says, do not murder. And yet here's Caiaphas who's leading the way to murder an innocent man, a man named Jesus. But not only does Caiaphas know that law, he also knows the prophecies. Again, he's memorized these to such a point that he's looking for this Messiah to come. Here's Jesus who's standing in front of him, who's fulfilling these prophecies. He is the Messiah. And I think deep down, Caiaphas probably has a pretty good inkling that that's who Jesus is. But there's too much at stake. There's too much for him to lose. And he has so much fear that's just coursing through his, his body and, and who he is that it just, it takes over what he decides to do and, and all these steps that he's taking to get rid of Jesus. He, I think, knows what it costs to follow God, to follow Jesus. Uh, 
but he's not willing to take that step. Because for him, I think there's more fear of what he would lose over time. And so he's willing to do whatever it takes to preserve his possessions, his prestige, his wealth, the influence that he has. When I think about Caiaphas, and I think about ourselves, saying yes to God will cost us something, but saying no will always cost us more. Saying yes to God will cost us something, but saying no will always cost us more. Here's the crazy part of this story. About 35 years after the, these events took place, um, we, we find that, you know, again, here's Caiaphas who's trying to preserve the nation and trying to preserve uh, the, this, this faith, this religion, trying to preserve the temple. And all these religious leaders are worried about this. We've got to protect this. General Titus of the Roman army comes in. He becomes the future emperor of Rome. And he captures Jerusalem, basically destroys Jerusalem, and actually does destroy the temple. And so everything that Caiaphas has tried to preserve in his life actually comes to an end. When you look at your life, what are you saying yes to? Are you saying yes to God, which is going to cost you something? And in the end, you may lose a relationship. You, you may lose a, a job title. You may lose a job. You may lose some income. But you can look back and say, you know what? I don't have any regrets in this. Or we like Caiaphas trying to preserve everything that we have. That what we have is too important to us right now. And we'll do anything we can to keep that role, to cling to that relationship, to build that bank account. When all we're trying to do is preserve the stuff that at some point in time in our life, it's all going to go away. And maybe it's time for us to stop demanding more and more. And instead, it's time for us to start surrendering more and more of ourselves to God. As I think about the life of Caiaphas, as I think about his story here, and there's a lot more we could have hit with him in his role and his, his influence in what happens with Jesus. It makes me think that there's two steps you and I can take. The first one is, maybe it's time to say no to some things in your life. And maybe there's some things in your life it's time to say no to. To make a list and say, these are the things that I have said yes to, and here's what it's causing me. <clears throat> Here are the regrets excuse me, that I have. And maybe it's that job, the title we're chasing, the money, the relationship. And maybe it's time for us to start saying no to those little gods in our life. Because if we keep chasing them, we'll always have regrets. If we keep chasing them, they're going to lead to self-destructive behavior. If we keep chasing them, we're going to be more like Caiaphas. So maybe there's some things in our life we need to start saying no to, which then leads us to the next step. Maybe it's time to say yes to Jesus. Maybe for some of us, we just haven't taken that step. Or, or maybe for some of us, we're followers of Christ, and we need a reminder today, hey, those little gods are starting to show up again. I need to say yes to Jesus more often. Or, or maybe for you, it's just time for you to say yes to Jesus, period. Uh, one of the most amazing steps that we can take is that step of baptism. And on Easter Sunday, April 17th, we're having a baptism Sunday. We, we'd love to have you kind of say, hey, I'm all in. I need to let go of some of these things and surrender myself fully to who Jesus is. 
I need to let go of those little gods and hold on, on to Jesus. And so, again, in front of you, there's a connection card. You can fill that out and say, hey, I'm interested in baptism. Or you can hit that QR code on your phone, and I think it's the third one down. It talks about baptism. We'd love to just maybe just even have a conversation. I've got questions. I want to talk about this. I want to know more. Man, I'm ready to take this step. And if that's where you are, and if you're at this place, you're ready to surrender yourself to be all in, we'd love for you to do that. And so make sure you fill that out. If you fill out the cards, you can put that in the offering box in the back of this room or out in the lobby. But here's the deal. Uh, Saying yes to Jesus is going to cost you something. Saying no is going to cost you so much more. And so we get to decide, do we want to be like Caiaphas and have those regrets and see it all go away? Or... Do we want to take the time to surrender ourselves to the carpenter who in the end will give us so much more?